Nothing goes with rock music. Quite like Rosé. The perfect thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is um this is a little bit of Rush Bastille Day from their album Cress of Steel, which was supposed to go with this podcast that we were supposed to record or we did record um about two weeks ago. And uh because of you know Bastille Day was a couple days after or before, I think, that, that recording. Um, but I kind of blame you for this and for the fact that about three quarters through when we were about to wrap up, I think the best podcast ever, um, the computer stopped working and we couldn't find the file. And um, it's because I think you weren't drinking rosé. I mean, it's a good assumption to make that because I was drinking something that was not rosé, everything failed. Um, you know, I, I, you're deflecting because you were drinking scotch and, you know, maybe you just can't handle your liquor and that's why it didn't work, Manny. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but okay, like, I, I, I'll take it. You know, it's all right. I'm, I rectified it now. I'm drinking sparkling rosé. Um, good. But so yeah, let's, hope, you know. let's hope my connection holds up. Uh, yeah, well, that's nothing too. We were, we were together. We were actually like together in person, but we're back to Zoom because that's just what's going on now, I guess. But, <laughs> that's right. I should have started with some Delta Blues. You know, I mean, I, I'm never going to get you to start with Bieber. So I'm not even going to try to to go that route. You know, I, I got you to cave a little bit on Ariana Grande, but that's probably the most I'm going to get you to yeah. cave. But uh, so, I mean, how can we? If, if we if we don't have the Bastille, how can we connect? How can we connect Rush to to our topic? Oh, I, well, so we've been gone for so long because of technical difficulties. Uh, there was actually something that I wanted to talk about, and it's Rush. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's a bad. That, that that's so bad. Uh, 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 oh please, <laughs> I don't want to hear anything about the bad, the, the cheesy dad puns from you okay all right it's there's, there's there's plenty from you um but no while we were gone uh oh yeah and again forgetting to introduce ourselves i'm adam cataldo he's manny gonzalez it's bomb in the bottle why would we remember to introduce ourselves we don't do it we just always forget <laughs> I, I, I assume that your mother already knows who we are well you know she's one of the three who listen maybe someone else will come on i don't know and if they do, they probably shouldn't know who we are, but now they do. So um, while we were gone, uh, you know, Russia got word that Manny had said that the French were influential, influential in making Italian wine and just causing this huge scandal. And Russia was like, you know what, Manny, hold my beer. I'm going to one-up you on this. I'm going to piss France off more than you pissed Italy off. Hold and, my vodka. Yeah. And they passed a law saying that any sparkling wine coming into Russia from outside of Russia cannot be labeled champagne. But you know what? Champagne is a Russian product. <laughs> what? Like, what? That, that is as good as declaring war on France. For you know that that oh, that's an extreme on, but like really, like so so yeah. Basically, guys, if if the Champagne region wants to export its product to Russia, it cannot label it Champagne anymore. It has to stay sparkling wine in the bottle now, because that's the only way it can be sold in Russia. This is insane to me. Like I like I I need a minute to collect myself. Go, Manny. I, like, I, I you know, honestly, I, 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 I see this all the time when we talk about the world of wine, the wine world, how important it is within politics. And people always say, 
you know, especially in our industry, you know, keep politics out of, of wine. And I totally understand that. But the reality is politics is always involved. I mean, we just finished off tariffs um, against France and Italy and, and Scotch whiskey, which I happen to be drinking again today um, because of a, a dispute with Boeing and Airbus. Um, and we're in the same situation where there's going to be some kind of sanction against Russia. It's going to escalate and, you know, who knows when, when the, when battle breaks up. And I mean, it, it does happen, which is, we think it's kind of silly, but wine is not just a way of life. It's not just an institution. To me, it is, it, well, it is a multi-billion dollar industry. I think in 2018, 2019, the wine industry netted well over like $300 billion um, in revenue in, in France, you know, so that's, a huge loss of income and and I think integrity. Um, and I think actually this ties in to our topic today and to kind of recap where, not where we left off because we left off wrapping up a great podcast that never happened, um, but starting off a great podcast that did happen that you don't hear, but we're gonna try to relive it today. Um, the importance of the wine industry and the wine industry that we know today um, owes so much to one little insect called um, phylloxera that devastated the wine industry in France. Um, it started devastating the wine industry in Spain and in uh, Italy and throughout Europe. Um, but I think it forced winemakers to reconsider how they produce wine. And they've grown it into this real important industry that now uh, Russia is starting to to rip off. And by the way, I have to say, I don't know if I would drink a uh, Russian champagne any more than I might try a Russian vaccine. That's just me. I mean, I'm not hating on Russian champagne. It might be gorgeous. They got a cool climate, you know. Uh, but to me, it's more what you're saying, like, and this actually, it's a great tie into phylloxera, especially with champagne, um, really quick. We talked about this when we talked about champagne. I don't think there's a region that has worked harder as a region collectively to brand themselves uh, as champagne does, like as being unique and different and special and luxurious and, and so on. And part of their the, that involvement in creating that brand, there was a lot that happened before phylloxera, but they kind of perfected it right after uh, phylloxera as well. And, you know, Russia's just like, yeah, we, we, we know what, we're going to just, we don't care. We're going to try and tie that branding into our stuff because we want to promote our stuff. And it, it's just, it's really interesting in general. Um, I mean, America does this a little bit too, where we have a couple non-champagnes that are grandfathered in that still say champagne on the bottle because, you know, we got this exception passed because it was America. It's not being exported to France type thing. Uh, and it retails for like six bucks. But it, it, it's like, th those are dicey things that are like negotiated in exceptions. Russia's just like, no, we're just going to change the, the, the rules. I just, it's just really interesting. It's really funky. It's really different. Um, and, but again, it's tied into phylloxera and not just champagne, but the other regions, like what we know, how we know them now was not necessarily how the world knew them pre-phylloxera. And it's, and it's been a painstaking process to develop that identity. And, you know, it's only really happened if phylloxera was what, late 19th century? You know, mid to late 19th century where it really devastated everyone? Yeah. Yeah, you know, and um, can you, um, just so people have a little bit of background before we get into some of the history, can you talk a little bit about what phylloxera is, what it does, um, and why it's why it's a, why it's nasty? So why the real reason, everyone, why the last podcast had to be scrapped and there was a technical glitch is that Manny admitted on the air that I knew something that he didn't, and he, we could not allow that to go live. So <laughs> um, no, I'm going to edit this out. Of course you are. Uh, so uh, phylloxera is a louse. It's a microscopic insect, okay? And what it does, it itself is not a disease. 
what it does is it attacks the vine, uh, you know, kind of it's the, the trunk of the vine for all intents and purposes. And it eats its way through these really tiny holes at the base of the vine into the rootstock. And think of, um, think of us as people when you get a big cut or uh, a gash or a scrape or whatnot, you know, we, we apply disinfectant, we put a Band-Aid over it, we ice it, we do all sorts of things to make sure that wound does not get any worse. Well, when phylloxera eats its way through one of these vines, again, it's a tiny hole, you don't get to see it. So we don't cover it up. And those little tiny holes allow for other diseases and insects and things to kind of get in and attack the vine. And slowly um, the vine, um, you know, becomes unwell and eventually no longer produces, you know, um, a fruit that can be used to make wine. Well, that, that really bugs me that, um, you know, that would happen. I mean, it's, it's just lousy. <laughs> it's lousy. But no, it's, it's true. And it, it almost works like, um, kind of like an immune deficiency, the same idea, you know, that, um, hmm and how it how it affects the vines it, it can no longer withstand any any other other issue um but you know i i think it's, what is interesting when we talk about these things and um you know there's always kind of a history behind it and where these things came from and how they survived you know because if um you know if if there was a way for a plant to to survive this then these insects would just kind of die out um but, you know, in why it affected France and why it happened in France um, four or 5,000 years after vines had been cultivated, not necessarily in France, but, you know, in the world, um, you know, there, there's, a, there's a big, big backstory to that. And it all starts actually in the Caucasus Mountains. There was a group of people that were um, kind of started as hunter-gatherers and then they ended up, um, you know, basically cultivating land, uh, using stone tools, herding cattle, and they started um, planting vines and, and cultivating vines. Probably not, you know, this about 8,000 years ago, not to, um, to make wine out of, although it's just a natural product. If you let fruit sit out too long, it starts to rot, um, it starts to ferment, you can get a little buzz going, you know, but, um, you know, that's the, the, the heart of all French wine states back here. And this is a species of vine called Vitis vinifera. Um, <clears throat> 4,000 years later, 2,000 years later in Armenia, near the town of Arini, um, they have the oldest known winery, uh, also Vitis vinifera. And varietals that we've never really heard of. Um, I think one grape is actually called Arini, but they're indigenous vines to, to Armenia. And this winery dates back to 4100 BC. I mean, that's a long time ago. That's long before, um, you know, Rome was making its really kind of obscure, hard to drink wines that were aged underwater and uh, with honey and fruits and all this other stuff, you know. But eventually as these, and going back to politics uh, and, um, you know, disputes between nations, as tribes would move further into the interior, what is now Europe and uh, Italy or Greece or France or Spain, uh, every time they would conquer anywhere, they would bring their vines and uh, they would plant grapes because you really couldn't, there weren't good water sources. So you couldn't really drink a lot of water. As they would plant the vines, uh, the vines would mutate, they would change, they would evolve over several hundred years. And that's where we get grapes like Pinot Noir, like Chardonnay, Cabernet Sauvignon, Sangiovese, Nebbiolo, whatever, um, what we call international varietals or, or, or varietals that we think of today, but they all stem from this species called Vitis vinifera, um, which is a, uh, as I mentioned, it's an old, old species of vine. And what I think is really interesting, tying it back once again to politics and conquest, all the major wine regions throughout France and Spain and Italy weren't planted with vines because they were great places to grow grapes and they were gonna make beautiful wine. They were all strategic points. Um, Champagne was a strategic area. So if you can control Champagne, you controlled Northern France and Northern Europe to Belgium. Um, if you controlled 
Cote Rhone or Croix Hermitage or Saint Joseph in, uh, in the Northern Rhone, you control the waterways of the Rhone Valley. If you control Bordeaux, you control the harbor. If you controlled Rioja, you control the crossroads to the, um, to the Atlantic Ocean, you know, and that's where they end up planting vines. And that's where all of these major wine regions come from. But over time, obviously, they, they learn that there's an art to it, that there's beauty and, and texture and all this other fun stuff that created the wine world. Um, and that's kind of the, the birth of, of wine in Vinifera. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, a lot of the, to kind of tie in, a lot of the great wine stories or wine success stories are, they're almost accidental, or they're at least coincidental, right? Like the, we talked about this with Burgundy, I'm going to get off into a tangent here, but I don't care. Uh, like, the, like we, we credit the monks of Burgundy with this amazing, you know, uh, discovery of, of Chardonnay and Pinot Noir in, in Burgundy, right? The whole reason they were given Burgundy as an area to, to cultivate was nothing grew there. And the Pope was, uh, not the Pope, excuse me, the, uh, the French kings were worried that if they gave the, the church land where they could grow food and give food to the poor people, that they would listen to the church more than they would listen to the, the king. And now, you know, but the, the monks took what they had and ran with it and made this amazing wine. And it's one of the most prestigious wineries in the world now. Um, you know, I mean, we even modern day wise, some of the, the most popular, you know, commodity wines from California happened by accident. You know, uh, you know, we were bleeding off a tank of Zinfandel to have less, to have less alcohol and had all this pink juice left over and oh, we'll bottle it and see what happens. White Zinfandel blows up like all like it's there are all these really kind of coincidental accidental success stories in the wine world um, tied to politics or economics that had nothing to do with I'm going to make a great wine out of this. It's, it's just really, you know, again, talking about how Philoxfera, though it was devastating, uh, was also beneficial. It's the same thing. Like it was a happy accident in, in the long run. So exactly you know and even though so we'll kind of um leave france for a minute and then you know kind of explore to the united states so some of the first settlers from france in the 16th 17th centuries around like 1650 or so they started planting their french vines in florida because florida is known for making great wine um yes. uh, or no it's not yeah um but for some reason, the, the, after two years, the vines were just dying and they couldn't figure out what was going on. But at the same time, Spanish missionaries were planting um, in West Texas, these real dry, arid climates in California, and the wine industry was booming there. Um, and it, it has nothing really to do with the climate. But what the French didn't realize is that in um, near the uh, American vines, which is you know, similar to Vitis vinifera, but it's called Vitis Labrusca, which means wild vine. Um, that's actually where the word Lambrusco comes from because they were foraging um, in the middle Romagna uh, and they would just kind of find these wild vines and they would end up producing wine from it. Um, and that's where Lambrusco comes from. But these wild vines in the United States um, had this parasite, but this parasite was immune to, or this, this, these vines are immune to um, this parasite. And there's a reason why. And it's, it really has to do with the language of trees, the language of uh, flora, the language of vegetation. And when you're in a forest walking around, you know, you can't really, you see roots coming out everywhere, but all these trees are connected and they communicate. In fact, there's a theory that trees develop friendships. And you can see, if you've ever been in the forest and you see two trees together, um, really just parallel right next to each other with vines, or not vines, with uh, leaves going on either side of one another. So they're not interlocking with the trunks. They're sharing the space and they're sharing the sunlight. They're not fighting each other. Um, it's actually in the tie back to Russia, um, when we talk about the concept of communism, forest, a healthy forest is a communist organization. It's a community and everyone uh, filters information and uh, nutrients to everybody else. And mushrooms that live in between these trees 
work almost like um, like a cell tower and they take communication from each tree and they pass it along. The same works with vines. So when you are, are a, um, a wild vine and you have uh, another vine that's maybe next to you and another vine that is maybe 40 feet away, another vine that's you know 20 yards away, um, the roots go much, much deeper into the soil than we, than we think. And what will happen is when a little parasite would latch on to one of the vines, a signal, kind of a warning signal to the other, um, to the other vines. And the vine next to the, the infected vine gets sick uh, because it doesn't have time to build up an immunity. But as you go further down the chain and further away from the initial infected vine, they develop immunity. Um, they, they, their bodies figure out how to protect itself from this, this parasite or this, this louse, this, this, uh, this insect. Um, and that's why American vines were, were healthy and the European vines would die. Um, you know, so in the, now we'll kind of jump ahead to like the 1840s, 1850s, uh, someone from Montpellier in the south of France decided they were going to bring some vines and uh, from the United States, bring them from the East Coast, bring them to Europe and plant them um, in the vineyard, the French vineyard to see uh, how these vines grew in French terroir and it ended up devastating France because these little insects, the phylloxera started to plant the big challenge was that um, phylloxera, when it affects the, the plant, it doesn't happen right away. It's about two years for the vine to die. And, but by the time the vine dies, the phylloxera has moved off to the next vineyard. So they had no idea what was going on. So it's not like they would pick it up and find these little aphids, these little bugs on the vines, on the, in the rootstocks. They were just void and dead. And it was just devastating and it spread like a plague at that point. Absolutely. And if you're sitting at home right now or in your car or wherever you are, the three of you listening to us, hi mom, uh, are like, why would you bring Vitis Labrusca from America back to France when you were already have this like this tremendous wine culture, right? Well, Vitis Labrusca is like, so Concord grapes for all intents and purposes, what we're talking about, grapes of that variety. They tend to impart a stronger, more impactful flavor. It might not be as nuanced or as delicate or as complex um, or better, but it it's more memorable. Uh, and you know, they I believe actually interesting and many correct me if I'm wrong, it was a wine from Missouri won some competition in, in France with one of these Labrusca uh, based wines and that kind of sparked the oh like maybe we should try doing these things because who doesn't want to win competitions fun fact uh and again Manny can correct me if i'm wrong i believe the first ada so uh aocs are in france ava is what we have in the united states for our like pr protection for areas i believe the first ava was actually in missouri kind of somewhat tied to this labrusca stuff yeah. yeah that kind of sparked the oh maybe this stuff will work over here maybe we can make better wine over here in France from these vines. Exactly, so um, it was, so Adam, can you tell us what what town you're in? Um, I'm in Norton. You're in Norton, all right. So um, you have in France and you have in Italy, you have in Spain, you have like Tempranillo, you have um, Sangiovese, Nebbiolo, or Cabernet Sauvignon, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, it's like really beautiful romantic sounding names and they sound romantic not just because you say it with a goofy accent but um the varietal that one that came from Missouri in the 1860s 1870s against all these French wines was called Norton I mean it which is like straight out of Honeymooners you know um Art Carney kind of thing and, and but, 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 well, hold, hold on in 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 the defense of the Norton grape Chardonnay does not sound romantic when I say it either. Okay, <laughs> so it's maybe even the French said no, and they could make it sound sexy. It's, it, it's uh, let, let's not do that. 
Okay, all right, I won't go there, but um, but you know, Adam's absolutely right. So when you're tasting, uh, especially in a panel of of uh, several wines, um, the wine that you're going to remember most is typically the wine that's going to get the highest rating. If you're sitting with like, I mean, literally with a lot of competitions or uh, wine spectator Robert Parker, they're tasting hundreds of wines a day, um, and it first of all it changes your palate. So when you're like an official taster, you typically start to enjoy things that are richer, that are heavier, that are more powerful, that are sometimes sweeter. Um, I mean, I can think of a lot of like super high-end wines from, from California cabs that are great wines, but they are definitely sweeter wines than you would find in Bordeaux, France. Um, you know, but they get huge, huge ratings. They get a lot of accolades because they're real impactful flavors. You know, and so when you're tasting all of these wines together, the wines you remember are going to be those wines. Um, and, you know, to, to that point, and I think you mentioned this last time, when you were looking at Wine Spectator, you're looking at Robert Parker, and you're looking at ratings, remember that these guys, when they're tasting wine, they're tasting, you know, hundreds of wines. And so what they really like are going to be these real rich, heavy, heavy wines. Like old school Burgundy does not score well. In Robert with Robert Parker or with um, uh, or with Wine Spectator Earthy Rioja does not score well. You know, uh, acidic, also too, dusty. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, go for it. Yeah, and not to interrupt too. They're they're I mean they're they're people with their own biases, right? Like there's no objective taste analysis of wine. So um, you know, like Robert Parker's got his lane and he rocks it. He's very successful, right? But Robert Park and I do not agree on on Pinot Noir at all, <laughs> and that's okay. So I, I know if I, you know, for me personally now, with I have enough experience, and Pocket does not review Pinot anymore either, which which helps. But if I saw a wine that he thinks is outstanding, like 98, 99 points, probably not my gym. You know, because I just I, I tend to like flavor profiles that are different. Well, that yeah, but like they're, uh, I I tend I have a different palate than Robert Blackham. So like sc scores are, they're not a bad thing. They give us an idea. They do speak to a certain level of quality and complexity depending on who's reviewing it. Um, but if if you and James Suckling don't like the same types of flavor profiles per se, you might not agree with his selection of Italian wines that he really likes. So it, it's it's kind of important to remember a review is still done by a person who has biases. Maybe they got divorced that morning, they're in a really bad mood, so nothing's getting a good score. I don't know. It's, it's just, it's one of those things where there's all the other, there's all these other components that go into it as well. It's just good to keep in mind. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, there were two, um, well, so when this, when they planted these vines here and they wanted to see what was gonna happen and, you know, the, the uh, phylloxera just started spreading throughout Europe, it started killing all these vines. Um, there were a few different issues. Uh, one was that at this point, the French industry had changed dramatically. Um, when we talk about the global wine world of the 1860s, we are just really talking about France. Um, and this is nothing against some of the cool stuff that was coming out of California. They had some really cool stuff from South, uh, South America, Spain, Italy, all these different places. But France was, the, and I know we always go back to France, but it, it really was the scent of the wine world. Um, he was drinking Oprion. Um, you know, this is, these were the first major exports of the wine industry. Um, and so it was a huge, it was becoming a huge commodity beyond a beautiful nuanced expression of terroir and of history and all this other stuff um, that it is in many ways, it was becoming dollars and cents. And it was becoming a very important part, the main focus of the French market, um, you know, and a lot of that had to do with like the trains, uh, when the trains came in through France, wines from Beaujolais started going to Paris and then Beaujolais Nouveau became the hit of Paris. Um, Bordeaux started traveling around um, to different areas of France and then different parts of Europe from there, you know. And so when it started devastating the European uh, landscape or the French landscape for wine, it was a huge, huge devastation to a, a growing industry. Um, and they discovered 
by well, just a natural occurrence. Uh, there was a um, part of southern France that had this huge flood. Actually, this might have been in the Côte d'Aron. And what had happened was the vineyards flooded and it killed off the phylloxera because it happened early enough in the, the phylloxera's life cycle. Because phylloxera goes through four different stages with 18 different transformations within each stage. So it's really hard to, especially back then, it's, it was really hard to understand um, when they realized that it was phylloxera, when it was this bug. And it was actually an American winemaker from Missouri who had said, you guys probably have phylloxera. We have it too, but our vines are resistant to it. Um, and so when this vineyard flooded, it killed all of these, uh, didn't kill the vines, it killed the insects. And then the, the uh, flood subsided, they drained out the vineyards and everything was hunky-dory, everything was fine. The problem was if you were in um, San Josef uh, in the Northern Rhone, if you're in the hilltop of Corton uh, in Burgundy, your vineyards are, you can't see it, but you're at like a, I mean, sometimes like a 45 degree angle. There's no way you can soak those, like flood those vineyards. The best vineyards are on hillside. Yeah, the best vineyards are on hillside. So that wasn't gonna work. And then they started developing, they tried to, um, to produce the American varietals, but like Adam said, they were too strong. They were too grapey, great for judgments, great for competition because they were so intense. But the people that liked subtle, earthy, delicate Beaujolais, who are the people that are ultimately buying the product, they weren't having it at all, you know? Yeah. And then they, and they finally, and, and you can probably speak to this a little more than I can, um, because of, of where you live, um, they started developing hybrids. Um, so, you know, that yeah. was kind of like a happy medium. Yes, I mean, hybrids are, so I, I'm, I will, I'll screw up the exact definition, but basically it is a, because hybrids and crossings are different things technically, right? Uh, but a, a hybrid basically is the is the baby of a vinifera and a labrusca vine, for all intents and purposes. Um, and some of these things work really well. I mean, some of the the I mean, the Vidal is probably the most well known hybrid, which makes gorgeous ice wine uh, in in Canada in particular. Um, Sylvania is another one, I believe, is another hybrid that, mm -hmm. that, that makes some pretty wines. Uh, but again, they're, you know, it, it's not, maybe now it's an exact science, but back then it wasn't. It, you know, it was not, you didn't know what you were going to get. And a lot of these hybrids just, just didn't work out. They did not give us flavor profiles that we wanted. The ones that we did, we've kept around. Again, you know, Inniskill in, in particular, this gorgeous ice wine made in Niagara, um, Vidal is one of their, you know, is their, I think it's their primary grape actually. Uh, and yeah. the wine is just stunning. Um, but the, it, it's, you know, it wasn't easy to figure out. And I'm going to forget the, the name of the guy who did it. Uh, many probably will because, you know, as I say all the time, he is the brains, except for the pot last time when I taught him something and he, you know, crashed the program. Um, but so what, what they did was they figured out that you could graft. Um, so what is, what's grafting? Um, you can graft essentially anything. Uh, what you do is we know that Labrusca is phylloxera resistant. So you would grow a Labrusca grapevine for all intents and purposes. And then you would skin uh, the trunk. You, you know, you'd cut the back off for all, you know, for all intents and purposes. And you would take a, a, a clipping from Vitis vinifera, you know, from Cabernet, Chardonnay, or, or whatnot, you would attach it to that open area that you just created, and you'd saran wrap it, basically, around the vine. In the next growth cycle of that vine, the vinifera is now attached permanently to the, the base of the Labrusca, but it's growing that vinifera vine. Uh, you can you, you people do this with lemons and oranges, you know, and limes now, for, and you know, in their backyard, if they don't have enough space to, you know, have you know, an orange grove when they want to have lemons and limes too. Like, people, people, this is a common practice, and they applied it to vinifera and labrusca, and it was really effective. Yeah, and um, so I think it was, I think the, the 
I mean, this was something they already knew. So for example, if you were to take a red delicious apple, which by the way, um, is kind of more dark purple and it's not very tasty. So I don't know why they came up with that name, but if you were to take a red delicious apple and you were to bury it in the ground, you were going to get a crab apple. Um, all red delicious apples come from, uh, genetically come from one uh, tree and I think it's in, it might be Missouri or Minnesota. And back around the same time, they used to have these competitions throughout the United States um, where they would kind of like the wine tastings where they would like take the French wines and then we would judge them. They would do, do it with apples. Whoever had the apple, the best apple from the wild because it's really unusual to take a Honeycrisp, which are delicious, and bury a Honeycrisp and get a Honeycrisp apple, you get a crab apple. Um, so what they do is they take from an original source, they take the clippings and they graft it to other, other trees. Um, and then they take some of those clippings and they graft them to other trees. And this is how uh, your classic orchard works. And so all of, the, um, all of the red delicious apples come from one, are genetically linked to one tree in the Midwest and it's under like lock and key, it's like, it's, it's like, it's like Fort Knox for credit. It's like, it's an awful insipid pasty apple. Sorry, America. It is, you know, but it's like under lock and key. And it's like, it's, it would be a big deal for you to go in there and steal an apple, right? You'd get arrested. Um, and so we knew that grafting was a thing, but I think a lot of the French were against it because they were, first of all, superstitious. Um, I think it was actually an American who had said, uh, his name was, uh, George um, Hauser, he was a German immigrant who went to Missouri, who had told, I think at some point, Emile um, Planchon, who was this famous uh, French enologist, that you guys can do this. He started saying, we can graft. And it took another probably six or seven years before French winemakers actually started grafting their vines. And by that point, they lost about 70% to 80% of vineyards. Some grapevines disappeared completely. But I want to get to kind of the point we talked about a little bit ago or in the beginning and how this is beneficial for the wine industry. And it was our beneficial in general because of what I'm drinking today, which is a blended scotch. So this coincided with a law that was passed in 1860 in the United Kingdom in England. Um, I don't know why I had to say the United Kingdom in England because everyone knows what they are. Um, in the British Isles, also the same thing. But basically saying that you could blend different distilleries together and create a blended whiskey. Now, the whiskey I am drinking, I took out of my boot a moment ago into a shape, is Dewar's White Label Blended Scotch Whiskey. So John Dewar and his sons like Tommy Dewar and, and John Jr., um, owned, they were merchants and they sold alcohol, they sold whiskey, beer and wine, all this stuff. But they, and along with a lot of other um, famous names we know in, in the blended scotch world, created something called a grocer's blend. They knew that not everybody liked the intense flavor of Isla, not everyone liked the sweetness of Highland, not everyone liked the delicate flavors of lowland scotch, and so they started blending together. And they started utilizing, at the same time, uh, you know, it's all a series of, of, of events. There was an Irish excise man, tax man, who was uh, taxing all the distillers in Ireland for the royal crown, for the British crown. Uh, his name was Anias Kofi, developed a, a continuous still um, called the Kofi still. And he tried to sell it to the Irish. The Irish were like, you know, get the hell out of here. They actually almost beat him to death uh, because especially back then you didn't want to mess with distillers. We can have a whole conversation about tar and feathering and the whiskey rebellion of uh, the 18 or the 1790s. Um, like it was pretty intense, but so he got out of Dodge. He went to England and he went, started showing this to people that were making gin and he started showing this to distillers in Scotland. And they started blending, not barley or, or distilling barley, they started distilling um, a wheat-based whiskey. Uh, which is what we call a grain spirit. And they started blending that with single malt whiskeys and created a very light, slightly sweet whiskey. Um, now, 
the reason why the British end up taking to blended Scotch whiskeys was because of phylloxera, because they couldn't drink brandy. Uh, brandy made with grapes from, well, like cognac, for example, or Armagnac, made from the southwest of France or around the, the uh, Saint-Emilion region of Bordeaux. Um, they would make a wine, they would distill the wine down and make brandy, um, or what the Dutch called brandewein or burnt wine. And the British were the number one consumers of brandy. They were the number one consumers of sherry, of port, of Bordeaux, and, all, and champ still the number one consumers of champagne. Um, more so than we drink here in the United States, and they're minuscule compared to us. Um, but they fell in love with these blended scotches because they couldn't get their brandy. Also the Sazerac cocktail, which is used with rye and, um, and Peychaud bitters, used brandy. And in fact, it was named after the Sazerac coffee house that was named after the Sazerac family who were distillers um, in France who made cognac or made brandy, they couldn't get this, so they started using rye whiskey. So it started changing how people had to consume. But what also was beneficial was that a lot of these French winemakers started going to Spain. They started going to places like Rioja and they brought their technique to Spain to make better, better Spanish wine. I'm gonna take a breath in some scotch now. You know, and I had asked before how many was going to piss off Spain and get, you know, exiled from there as well. He might have just done it with that statement, saying the French improved upon Spanish wine. It's, this is just, uh, this is his thing. <laughs> just what he's going to do, apparently. Has Chiro said he's never working with you again? I mean, is, is that <laughs> he's come out and said, you know, like, screw this? Uh, oh, man. Blasphemy, but, as he says. Blasphemy. Oh, poor Chiro. You know, um, <laughs> no one likes Italian wine but Chiro, at least according to Chiro. We all know. do. Everyone loves it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, yeah. It's, the, it's interesting, too, because the, the, the column still that was basically what you were just talking about when, when, when it came to Scotch, um, it's, it was like the major technological improvement in, in distilling spirits. I mean, it... it, it you know, not to get too geeky into it, but it essentially gives you more control over the process. So to the point now where if you're into whiskey, right, and, or, you know, any, any whiskey, and you hear like, oh, hey, like we, we I, I make my bourbon or my rye or whatever it is, I, I use a pot still. Like it goes off because they're, they're, they're doing the old fashioned method. They're using a different way where you have to have a little more, you don't have as much control because the column still kind of, was this boon to the uh, the spirits business? Well, it's it's used everywhere now, and more spirits than I can probably count. So, again, it even not only did it make Scotch popular, um, but it also was this major renovation innovation in the uh, in the spirits business in general because it, it came about. So, Veloxer did exactly. lots. And just to dispel a myth, um, a lot of uh, American distillers will say that they use pot spills but they're not, they're actually column stills with what's called a thumper, which acts like a pot still next to it. Um, and it still goes, it, they just remove the plates, but it still kind of utilizes this, this column still. Um, but once again, it's just more control. So it's, it's kind of a hybrid, like Vidal, <laughs> going back to the, to the grapes. Um, but I mean, I think, yeah, like this, you're right. Like this changed everything and, and not just obviously for whiskey, um, which I can talk all day about, um, you know, but it changed the perception of, of how the wine industry worked, you know, and unfortunately they, they lost a lot, of, a lot of indigenous vines, but maybe those were inferior vines that didn't produce great wine, you know. Um, I know one in particular, uh, we often talk about when we talk about phylloxera, and, and it leads to a question, can you still produce wines off original French rootstocks? And yes, um, it does happen in some parts of Europe. Uh, phylloxera can't go over long distances. So if you're isolated, uh, you can use these old rootstocks or um, it can't go over sand. So there's an area, I believe it's called Colores in um, Portugal, not far from, from Alentejo. And it's, 
it's right next to the coast and you have to go over sand dunes to get to the vineyards. Even if phylloxera is on your shoe, it's going to die in the sand, <laughs> you know, and so the vines, the vines are, are protected there. Uh, but the main one I think is, is Carmenere. You know, oh, hundred percent. Yeah. yeah it, it's so the common year story in and of itself probably should be like three podcasts. Um, but it, we, it, everyone thought that it had died out in Bordeaux and it had gone. Um, right, so this is this story. How, how do I narrow this thing down? Okay. So you can do it. You can we, do we, it. We, so we, it's believed to be gone in, in, in totality. And, uh, you know, after phylo uh, phylloxera. Fast forward to the 1980s, I think, maybe, was it 80s, in, in, in Chile. And there is a gentleman from the University of Bordeaux, whose name I'm gonna forget because I'm bad with names, even though I'm in sales, and who's <laughs> in Chile doing a survey of the vineyards. And he's walking around this Merlot vineyard. And by the way, at this point in time, Chilean Merlot is universally panned by everyone, including the Chileans. They just can't figure it out. They want to grow it because when you make good Merlot, it's really good. Um, but it's just, it's, it's inconsistent. They can't figure it out. So this, this gentleman is walking through the vineyards and he sees these, these vines that have a different leaf. And he goes, what, what vineyard am I in right now? Goes, oh, it's Merlot. He goes, that's not Merlot. I'm, I, I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure what that is, but that's definitely not Merlot. So upon closer inspection goes and finds out because the, because the Merlot vine and the Caminier vine are very similar in appearance, but they ripen at dramatically different, uh, dramatically different times. And, you know, uh, Caminier is the later ripener, Merlot is an early ripener. Uh, it can, can, can compared to one another. And he goes over, looks at the looks at the leaf and goes, this is not a Merlot leaf, this, this is a common year. Like, oh my God, you have you have common year in this vineyard. Sure enough, they go through all the Merlot vineyards in Chile and they find common year interspersed throughout the Merlot. So again, I just said common year was a later ripener than Merlot. So you're picking under-ripened common year with ripened Merlot and you get this kind of green, woody, not so pleasant red wine because you have all this under ripened Caminier in the blend. But so Caminier survived phylloxera, which is awesome, uh, and figured it out, separate them, and now Chile makes really good Merlot and makes really great Caminier. But how do they, how do they, just, oh, first of all, his name was uh, Jean Marie Boissacourt. Um, by the way, I didn't know that off the top of my head. I Googled it, although I've done. A bazillion, well, not a bazillion, but a, a quite a few like uh, presentations on Carmenere, and I always forget his name. I'm doing one. I'm doing one in two weeks, and I'm going to forget his name. I have to Google literally thirty seconds before I, I, <laughs> I, I, I talk about it. Um, but how do they? How do they determine like the ripe? Like what's an early ripening? What is a what is a late ripening varietal? I love this question. Yes, I'm geeking this is, out right this, now. Is, okay. this is called a setup, by the way. Oh, I love this question. Okay, so um, for the for those of you who who are not aware, um, the most widely planted grape in Switzerland is a grape called Chasselat. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but but I'm close enough. Uh, you also find it in France. Chasselat apparently is the benchmark grape for ripening. So that's the, the median point. If you ripen after Chasselas, you're a late ripener. If you ripen before Chasselas, you're an early ripener. <laughs> like we hear, I mean, many are in the business and we hear, oh, it's an early ripening rape. Oh, it's a late ripening rape all the time. But no one ever tells you what that actually means. <laughs> Just go, oh, well, one happens in, you know, September and one happens in October. I don't know. Like, it's the, but that's, that's the legitimate, you know, benchmark is do you ripen before or after Chasselas? 
um, Merlot apparently before and Common Air after. There you go. So uh, that's Manny wanting me to feel better about last time knowing something that he didn't and him killing the, you know, killing the video. That's what that was. That was him throwing me a bone. So thanks, Manny. Hold on, see if we can hear it. Shasala. <laughs> can you hear it? Shasala. 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 There you go. It sounds, he sounds like he's saying, he sounds like he's saying yummy, yummy, which I, I never hear Laurel, by the way. I don't know, I don't know what you hear on that. That <laughs> eh, worked for me. But, you know, but it's, it's true, like with Carmenere, like, you know, these, a lot of these vines are actually, I think all these vines in, in Chile are um, original, not even rootstock. A lot of times what they did was they would take clippings from places in Bordeaux or in Burgundy or the Loire, and they would just stick twigs in the ground and twigs, the plants continue to grow. Like they start developing roots. Um, I was in, uh, and just to rub it in your face again, Adam. Uh, Every time. Uh, as I mentioned this last time, which you guys won't hear, but I'll say it again. Uh, just um, with three, three and a half years ago, my, my uh, Tom Tellier, one of our colleagues, and Sweeney and myself went to um, New Zealand and Australia, which Adam didn't get to go on the trip. He should have gone, but um, he, but I got to go instead. So he, uh, so anyways, like these vines in this Tyrrell's Vineyard, which is in the Hunter Valley, it's a lot of limestone, there's sand in the soil because we are, um, you know, we're not far from the, the Pacific Ocean. Uh, we're separated by mountains, the, uh, this Eastern mountain range in Australia and it creates this really beautiful microclimate, but they don't have phylloxera. And some of the vines that we saw was specifically in their HVD vineyard, which is the, um, uh, not far from their estate, has the oldest vines of Chardonnay in the world. They were planted in 1909, 1911. So 110-year-old Chardonnay. Clippings taken from the Hill of Corton, and they basically just took them and planted them right into the ground. Um, and they are these huge, gnarly trunks. And what is really unique about these old vines, um, you know, usually old vine wines don't have a ton of yield to them. Um, and I asked Chris Tyrrell, the winemaker, I said, these vines are so old, how much fruit do you get off of them? Because I can't imagine, I can't imagine it's a lot. And he's like, these vines thrive. These wines do amazingly well. They produce a lot of fruit. Uh, so much so, and the, and the wine is, the fruit is very complex, so much so that they actually declassify the majority of the parcels to go into different wines, and the best wines, the best parcels go specifically, or bros, and the best vines go specifically to their HVD Vineyard Chardonnay, which is amazing, and Vat, 40, Vat 47, I think, is actually their top tier Chardonnay, and it's just, it's an incredible wine, and I wasn't expecting to be blown away by Chardonnay, but that was on that trip. The best thing that I had was their Chardonnay. It was like, it was, and they're known for Semillon, the white grape Semillon. It was just fantastic, you know, but phylloxera is such a big deal that when we went from Australia to New Zealand and we get off in central Otago, which by the way, if you ever have seen the Lord of the Rings and you know, the gates of Mordor and the mountains of Mordor, that those mountains are literally at the airport in um, the central Otago in Queenstown. Uh, they, they didn't doctor it up, it's just there. It's really cool. Um, but when we get off the plane, we're going through customs. Now, mind you, I like to travel with rocks. And Adam and I went to Argentina uh, five, six years ago, and I came home with a bunch of rocks to give to my kids from vineyards. Um, it's cheaper than buying presents, and I don't have to pay a tax. Unfortunately, when you go through customs and there's a chance they might check your bag, so I took some old socks, I put some rocks in there. Tom did the same thing. We get to the customs line and the woman asks, she's like, uh, where'd you guys come from? Because they do an upspeak in, in New Zealand. <laughs> and Ben goes, oh, we came from Australia. Oh, what were you doing in Australia? Oh, you know, we were in Sydney. And, uh, you know, what you do for a living? We, you know, work in the wine industry. Did you visit some vineyards? Yeah, we went to uh, Tyrrell's in the Hunter Valley. Did you go through the vineyards? And myself and Tom and Elizabeth George who were with us were like, don't say this. Say, you know, did you go to a farm? 
went to another country. Oh yeah, and I gave helped give birth to a cow. Like you know, you're you're gonna get stopped. You might as well have drugs on you. And uh, so they, I'm thinking to myself, crap, they're not gonna let us in because I have rocks in my socks. Um, <laughs> that rhymes. And uh, and what a stupid way to get kicked out of a country. But phylloxera is such a big deal. Thankfully, they just had to step on a couple mats uh, to clean our shoes and we were on our way. Um, but just um, a little hint, if you are smuggling rocks in your socks in the bag and you're going to a country that doesn't have phylloxera, don't tell them you walked through vineyards. It's, it, it is a huge deal because it's a huge industry. And it can be devastating. That's why they're so protective. It, it's the... Yeah. So yet, I don't know if we talked about this before, but if you, if you have to replant a vineyard, so in the, again, wine to business, all these wineries that we're talking about that we deal with replants because they have to in many situations, you know, at, at certain amounts of time. We're talking commercial vineyards. So, you know, um, things that make your jug wines for all intents and purposes. You know, those get replanted every 20-ish years. Things that make nicer wines, but, you know, not jug, we'll say your, you know, your 15-ish dollar ranges, those might get replanted every, you know, 30 years and, and so on. Um, the good stuff that we talk about, like the high-end stuff, where they, they, they care about the terroir and the history and so on, those will go for a long time. But even those in particular, um, if you lose that vineyard to phylloxera, you lose your story, you lose your identity, you lose what, what makes you unique. And that's just not something that they want to risk on any level. Because it takes about, to be honest, five years to get decent fruit off a new vine. Uh, you can probably get fruit earlier than that, but you're blending it with older fruit to get a decent product. But if you're just going to use a single vineyard, five, six years to get a, a quality wine off that vineyard, and if you're, you know, if you, if you had a hundred year old vineyard previous, you got to wait a hundred years to, <laughs> to get that quality back. So it's a, it, it, it's a big deal. It really is. Um, and we've talked about a little bit how it, you know, it, it changed and, and so on. And I, just to give an idea, we, you know, we see these lovely photos of vineyards now, right? Um, someone takes their selfie or you're looking at a winery website, you see this lovely manicured vineyard. You might even see, even if it's a biodynamic vineyard, there's all this flora and fauna around it. Just, just gorgeous, right? Uh, 160 years ago when phylloxera hit, we weren't necessarily neatly planted in rows. We weren't sorted by grape variety in rows. We didn't have things blocked off. Some places did, don't get me wrong but we didn't have the structure that we have now. That structure happened because they were like, okay, well, you know, I'm not gonna replant. I'm in, you know, the Rhone. I'm not gonna replant my Grenache to Syrah in the Northern Rhone because the Grenache has been here for 60 years and it takes six years to get good, you know, get good grapes off a new vine. We're just gonna keep it there and make the best of it. Well, now it's dead. So they go, okay, I have a clean slate. I'm going to start over. And that's what a lot of these, a lot of these places in France, Spain, Italy did when phylloxera came. They, they focused in on the grapes that worked best in their area because they had that clean slate and the wine improved. So was it devastating? 100%. Uh, but it allowed to kind of somewhat modernize how the vineyard was, was laid out and also play to their strengths so the wine improved. So if you were able to survive the, the economic hit that phylloxera was, there was light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think, I mean, kind of just recapping all this, um, I think we can, we can safely say that we talk about it quite often, the devastation of phylloxera and, and how devastating it was to the wine industry. You know, you got to <laughs> make an omelet, you got to break some eggs, you know, and um, it was beneficial for the long term, you know, in, in what, what the wine industry had to do, how they had to recoup, um, how, they, how, they, how to rethink their industry. And from that, we had all these un, other industries that took advantage when the wine industry couldn't produce 
and now they're their own industries, you know, which is kind of cool. It's, so my question is where, where should we go next? But, but before we do that, you know, I just realized I told everyone that I'm drinking sparkling rosé. They don't know what sparkling rosé I'm drinking. And they want to know. That's true. And if you don't, well, it's bad. Inquiring Because I am drinking uh, JCB number 69. Uh, and get your mind out of the gutter, people. Uh, the 69 has to do with an AOC classification. Um, it is, it, I mean, we can tie it back into Ariana Grande, but I won't, um, even though I just did. Uh, but it's the, um, JCB is, is Jean-Claude Boisset. Yeah, whatever. It's Jean-Claude Boisset. Man, Manny's having a panic attack right now. Um, Jean-Claude Boisset. And um, this is his Rosé Cremants. Oh, that's can't my writing. <laughs> I'm trying to feed you lines here. Oh, yeah. So 69, oh, see, I, I got it screwed up. 1969 was Jean-Claude Boisset's birthday. <laughs> you know? I, I've been drinking a bottle of rosé, okay? Give me a break. Um, but it is, um, it, it, it is rosé cremant. Uh, so we are predominantly Pinot Noir. We are Brut. Bourgogne cremant is made in uh, Metaux Traditionnelle, so we're made like champagne. There's the shorter aging requirement. Um, it is absolutely. I think it's now pronounced Champinsky. How would they? How would they say it in Russia? Uh, I, you know, like it's just we are on a Russian hit list now, or a Russian watch list now. Is what's going on. Uh, <laughs> aside from the fact that we brought it up for that, you then equated a forest to a communist society and said Russia in the sentence. So, yep, we are now on a government watch list, but yeah, it's yes, yeah. I probably was already for half of my activities, you probably were too. Um, oh, yeah, I didn't mean but, to steal the thunder. No, tell us about the wine. No, um, it, it just it, it, it's rose cremant. If you love, as, as I do, as you all know, um, sparkling wine, uh, sparkling, you know, champagne, rose champagne in particular, but you don't have the budget to drink that, you know, all the time, which, I mean, few of us do. Uh, Cremant from Burgundy, Cremant in general, if you can find one, Loire Valley, Burgundy, other places in France is a wonderful way to kind of get your fix and still have that terroir and that French style without having to pay the price tag of, uh, of champagne. And I mean, this is, if you gave this to me blind, I would probably guess that it was a, a rosé champagne, but the complexity, the tight bubble that it has, and, and, and so on. Just a really, really pretty uh, sparkling rosé uh, from Jean Charles Boisset. And it's um, and you're tying in all the things that you love with that. It's... I am, and you know, it's it's interesting too. Really quick, like are we just talking about all these changes that happened. Um, Burgundy kind of helped serve. In many ways, like, you know what? No, we do Chardonnay and Pinot Noir really well. We're just going to keep going with it. <laughs> you know? You, uh, you pronounced those really well this time. Did I? I think you just got to not think about it. Yeah, it's, you know. Chad. <laughs> go, that's better. Chad. So um, where, where, should we, where should we travel to next? We haven't talked. Usually we talk about this and we kind of decide. Um, beforehand and i think we forgot i i think i think we need to go to spain just because i need you to get yourself kicked out of spain you've already been kicked out of italy you've already been kicked out of france uh italy and france we need to get you kicked out of spain now too so and it's okay, also perfect it's, yeah um you've done my thing like five times now you need to do your thing so <laughs> That's exactly what I wanted to where I wanted to go to. So that's perfect. Um, yeah. So we'll we'll go on to Spain next, um, and then I think we got to get ready for a, a sales meeting in a little bit. Um, given any thoughts? Any closing thoughts? What do you think of? Um, what are your thoughts on Philoxtra and, and 
it's you know I, I'll be honest I had I, when, when you initially had pitched this idea there was a little trepidation I don't like you know like yes in the long in the long term it's been a good thing for the wine industry it's been a good thing for us because we work in the wine industry in the modern day right we have all these beautiful wines to sell and whatnot but there's lots of families and wineries and people who were whose personal lives were devastated by phylloxera. And we're going to talk about this in a positive light with all this kind of, you know, um, where there's all this tragedy involved. Uh, but it, it's, you had a lot of pe people persevere through that tragedy and have, have these great stories. Um, it is how we got to where we are today and the wine is better today. Uh, and, you know, um, it, it's like everything else. There's there, there's a light and dark to all stories, right? Like nothing is a hundred percent positive or a hundred percent negative. There's always going to be a, 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 a light side and a dark side, and you have to talk about them. So it's the we can acknowledge that you know phylloxera at the time was devastating and detrimental and a setback and so on, but it's a it also wound up because of the people involved, the perseverance, what they wanted to do um, shows the triumph of ingenuity and human spirit and in, in, in moving forward and creating a beautiful product. So um, I got over my thing, my guilt, and uh, you know, it, it all worked out. So Awesome. I think we go to Spain next and I'm going to crack open a really great bottle tonight of Champanskoi. I think that's how they pronounce it. I actually just Googled it. And that's how they, Champanskoi is how they say champagne now in Russia. Ooh. Yeah. There you go. I wish I, knew, I wish I, I wish I knew a Russian swear word to say, but I'm going to lead us out with some music. Um, until next time, folks, thanks for visiting us on our little corner of the world, bottom of the bottle. I'm going to finish my whiskey. Adam, I know you're going to finish your... Your JCB 69. I'm going to keep my mind in the gutter. <laughs> As we dine, you people. <laughs> we get ourselves in another watch list. Going out with a different song this time. There you go. It's called Fifi the Please. To Russia, and then you make the bug and the LC joke at the same time. Yep. I'm a, I'm a dad. <laughs> my, my thing. My dad never made that jokes. My dad never made dad jokes when I was a kid, so I feel I feel um, slighted. So I I write these things down sometimes. No, they actually just come to me naturally, you know, as if like there's an angel above me, an angel dad above me, a little wand. Never you mind his mind. You know, a little stupid corny wand. He just comes to me, and then I say something stupid. Dying for love of you, little flea. You've broken her heart with your lying. She couldn't stand to see you throw her love away without trying the day fifi died the little clown vowed he'd tend her grave every hour he broke down and cried when he saw her grave and on it he placed a small flower poor little flea Away. He'd lost his Fifi forever So they opened her grave Put him inside Now at last they are together